0: Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here with my <clears throat> with my friends, my brothers and sisters. Help us to learn today, and help us to grow from it in Christ's precious name. We ask, Amen. So, at any time, if you have a question, just put your hand up or speak up, and uh, I'll try to answer the question if I can. The first question is: Why do churches have doctrinal statements or confessions of faith? Well, a doctrinal statement tells you what a church believes in a concise, accessible manner. So there's no ambiguity. You want to know what does the church believe about this? There it is. That's what we believe. Now, it's a statement to the congregation what you can expect to hear taught. You can expect to hear these things taught here. It also is a way for you to hold your pastors and teachers accountable. You say, okay, you're teaching contrary to what the confession says. So it's a way to do that. A doctrinal statement also distinguishes a church or group of people or group of churches from other churches. So in our in Sheboygan, there's all kinds of churches. We are not like every other church. If we were, there would be one big old giant juicy church <laughs> in Sheboygan. But there's a reason. There's reasons why there are distinguishing marks between the churches and the confessions uh, will highlight those things. Doctrinal statements make it easier to track what Christians have believed down through the centuries. So, like Lumpkin's little book here, this goes all the way back to. He goes back to the mid sixteenth century. I gave you the Waldensian Confession, which goes back to eleven twenty. Uh, Philip Schaff has a book called Creeds: The Creeds of Christendom, has all the confessions, all the way back through of all the various groups going way back and also in his in his uh, eight volumes on church history he tracks the same thing it's very very fascinating if you want to get a real accessible church history there's there's a two volume set it's called uh it's three volumes it's uh two thousand years of christ's work on the earth by a guy named nick needham nick is really a, a brilliant writer and a gifted speaker too you can hear him on sermon audio and he has some great bi- biographical sermons so they make it easier to track what Christians have believed down through the centuries. R.C. Sproul famously said, if you're teaching something that the, Christ, that the Christian church hasn't taught for 2,000 years, you're wrong. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. It's all it's all been done. You say, well, I've never heard it before. Just because you've never heard it before or I've never heard it before doesn't mean it has already been taught or covered or dealt with. Almost all the major Christian heresies – I say almost – the only major Christian heresy – That was not, I'm not going to say call it heresy. Most of them were dealt with in the the early church councils by the 5th century. Now, objections to doctrinal statements. Some people, some churches object to having statements because they can become equal to scripture. This is a real problem. If you're a Presbyterian minister, you swear uh, a vow, an oath, to uphold the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Which is a wonderful statement of Christian doctrine. It's wonderful. Except it's wrong about baptism. It promotes and supports infant baptism. So, in the, in the uh, Presbyterian Church, it, that's, that's, it's called, it, they, they see it as the true interpretation of Scripture. And we don't deviate from it. And, it can, and now, they're not saying it supersedes Scripture. But they're not going to change it. <laughs> they're not going to change it. They, it's, it's, it's debated constantly. Uh, I have a friend who is a uh, Presbyterian pastor. I have a couple friends, actually, who are Presbyterians. And they, uh, when they took their vow to uphold the Westminster standards, they have to say, is there anything in the standards you don't agree with? And my, one of my friends, he's a whole hog kind of guy. He said, I agree with everything. My other friend said, I disagree with this statement on the Sabbath. Because the Westminster statement on the Sabbath day is that you don't do anything on the Sabbath day. You don't fish, you don't hunt, you don't play golf, you don't play cards. You just go to church, go home, do spiritual things, and then come back for worship in the evening time. And my friend said, that's too strict, which I agree. Don't you? <laughs> so uh, so people object to these things because they become equal to Scripture. And they can often be too strict and not leave any room for growth or changes In understanding, in understanding. Now, Scripture, however, does not tell us to develop doctrinal statements. Uh, But let's let's look at Acts 2.42 for a second. Acts 2.42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. If you're going to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, you have to know what the apostles taught. And that's why we have the New Testament. We have what the apostles taught. However, we do have to have statements of what we, how we interpret the New Testament. This is, this is, this is a key thing, which I'll get to uh, at the end. Scripture doesn't tell us that, but Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, The things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. You have to have know what to teach. Now, what's the problem with oral tradition?
1: It distorts
0: it it it, it, it can change. People can forget, misremember, misstate. There's a famous uh, citation in Calvin's comment <laughs> Calvin's commentary on 1st Timothy where Calvin, he's working from memory he has a new he has the New Testament memorized. He's working from memory and he, he misremembers what Paul said to Timothy when he writes it down. And so he his commentary is altered because of his misremembering. This has happened to me more than once. <laughs> Where you're you're trying to give a sermon, you know, and you something leaps in your mind and you latch onto a verse and one of my friends, uh, fathers was preaching his uh grandma's funeral down in lansing and uh he talked about the 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 unfaked faith of his grandmother not the un, not the unfaked what does he say he anyway the, the word in the authorized version is the unfeigned faith and this guy used some different word because he's going from memory and his son his son was just really tore he's so mad at his dad uh, for, for getting her wrong. I wish I can remember the exact word he used. Number three, church members and doctrinal statements. Members of particular churches need to be aware of what their church believes. Sadly, few people understand or know what their church believes. Because probably the majority of people join a church because why? Their friends are there, their grandma's there, or they like it. I like this church. Now, not everybody joins a church, though. People just come. You know, they're and they're, 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 they start to feel like they're a part. But church members, those who have confessed, a confession of faith is a confession. These are what we believe. What we believe in the in the Presbyterian Church and the PCA, their the Westminster Confession is very long. It's very long, but the members themselves are not required to know what it says. Only only the pastors are. In Baptist churches, confessions of faith tend to be much briefer. Because the expectation is everybody in the church is going to have some idea of what the church believes. This is going to be the, what the people to know, it, to know it. Now, Baptist and Confessions. Baptist churches are both pro- and anti-confessionalism. They come down on both sides of that issue. <clears throat> there are those who are for them and those who are against them. And uh, I have a friend of mine, pastors a, a very good church in North Alabama. And uh, he he told me, I said, what confession are you guys using? He said, all we got is a King James Bible, buddy. That's all we got. So we don't need a confession. We don't need a confession. And in one sense, I pastored a church in Arkansas. They had no confession of faith. They just said we have the scriptures. And that was, that was fine. <clears throat> the only thing is, when I began to preach something they didn't agree with, they got kicked off. Because it wasn't a commonly accepted belief that they had. But they had no they had no measure by which to judge me, because I said, "Look, here's what the Bible says," and they would say, "Well, we don't agree with your interpretation of the Bible." I said, "Well, this is what I think it this is what I think it means," and because there was no confession of faith to hold me accountable to, you know, you could basically say whatever you wanted to say until uh, well, you, you can't say anything you want to say. You guys know what I mean. So, Baptists have opposed confessions. Because the way people tend to exalt them over scriptures. Baptists are very committed to the authority of scripture above all things. Now that said, Baptists have produced some incredible confessions of faith. You have Lumpkins here. This is this is probably the greatest one ever produced. The London Confession of Faith. Uh, it's enduring. I don't know of any theological issue. Very few issues that this doesn't cover. This is, if, you, if you look at it. It's, it's, re- it's really good. And uh, it's, very, it's very like the Westminster Confession, and it's almost, it is almost held to equal esteem as the Westminster Confession by a Reformed Baptist. Most Baptist churches have confessions of faith, but they never look at them. They never, they never think about them. And this, this, this can be a problem. This can be a problem. Number five, what does it mean when someone says, I am a Baptist? I am a Baptist. Now, the term Baptist identifies a certain kind of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a doctrine of the church. So you can you can have Baptist ecclesiology and be a heretic. You can be a Baptist in a Baptist church with Baptist ecclesiology and die and go to hell. It's a it's what a it's what a church looks like. It's what a the visible church a visible church looks like. Okay, so uh, it shocks people. This may shock people, but if a church only baptizes believers and only admits to membership persons who were baptized after a profession of faith, they are technically the B word. (laughs) Whether or not they would admit it or not, they're technically Baptist. Of course, Baptist is not a biblical term. They're technically just following the New Testament. This is why churches that follow the New Testament wind up looking more like us in their ecclesiology, than you do the Catholic Church, or the Lutheran Church, or any other church, when you follow the New Testament. It's very simple. It's very uh, functional. It's organic. How many people does it take to have a church? What what does it take to have have a church, a visible church? Just a few people? Two or three people who have put their faith in Christ, who've been baptized, and who decide to organize themselves under the headship of who? Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ personally founds every single church through the Holy Spirit. He draws them together, they they, they form together. So it's very organic. So if we were in in any place, If if if, if you move to Detroit, and there's no good church in your neighborhood, but you meet up with two or three other Christians in your neighborhood, you guys start saying, you know we need we need to find a church we, we need a church we don't have to have a building or anything you can meet in your basement you can meet in your living room around a kitchen table with the scriptures and it the, the new testament church is very very simple very organic it can it can take it can it can prosper anywhere anywhere it's a, it's, a, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread well it predates sliced bread yes you can
1: you talk about church you're talking about a denomination no it's good good
0: point good point bob i'm talking about um a congregation of people Mm -hmm. so the word church we we use the word church because in scotland they the word was kirk the kirk and was the building baptist and uh, i keep saying baptist don't 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 take that the wrong way but they would call the, the 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 church house they would call it the chapel, where the church meets. The church is the congregation of people. It's congra. It's congregational. So William Tyndale, when he translated the New Testament into English, he never translated "ecclesia" as church. He always translated it "congregation," because that told you it was the people, the people, individual people.
1: And how can uh, a church within a denomination uh, justify? Uh, Getting away from a confession of faith that is prescribed to by that denomination.
0: This this is this this is this is a, this is a good question because uh, somebody has to hold the if you if you're in a church with a hierarchy so there's a there's it's called a uh, so like in the uh, in the Catholic Church you have bishops who are over an archdiocese which is over a lot of other churches and. And the further away you get from the top, churches down here on the fringe, there's going to be there's going to be some some tomfoolery always. You know, when the cat's away, the mice will play, and somebody has to watch over those churches. And it's always the pastors. The pastors will lead people astray, and so in in that kind of structure, the bishop they have to be militant about watching over that, micromanaging it. So there's no justification for it. If they're a part of that group, they should leave. They should leave that group. You can't justify it, but it, do, it does happen. Uh, and usually, they, those churches will ultimately, usually almost always, they break away and form new denominations. and they, they form new ones. So, does that answer your question, Bob? Yes. I'm not sure, I'm sure I understood what you were saying.
1: You mentioned, um, when you're given your definition of a church, church or three
0: people. <clears throat> well, that's just the simplest form of it. But
1: you said baptized
0: believers. Baptized believers.
1: And I know it's not a confession of faith. It's always
0: baptized believers yeah and that's de- that's derived from the New Testament because jesus Jesus when he forms his church i think that ch- i think he started the church before pentecost this is this is, this is not the majority view, but I think Jesus started the, the church before Pentecost himself at Pentecost it was empowered and he he forms his church even the, even the, even if the church starts at Pentecost. Those people became the visible church at baptism. Acts 2 says after Peter preached his message, 3,000 people were baptized and they were added to them, added to the pre existing people of 120 odd, the names that we have there in Acts 2. Yes, sir? So you can have a group of believers congregating but not a church. Isn't that kind of a fine distinction? Yes. That's what that's and that's and that's where being, that's where being a Baptist pops in, pops into full view is Baptist Christian believe that the only, the un- the only legitimate visible church is one that's composed of baptized believers so and this this is this has kind of changed in the last I don't know probably uh, 30 years part of this church I'm part of the universal church. Mm-hmm. There's, there's there's two churches. There's two churches. There is the we'll call it the uni, the universal church, and then you have the local church. <clears throat> the local church is is uh, okay, the universal church is composed of everyone, everyone who has been born again. Aka, First Corinthians twelve thirteen. Baptized by one spirit into one body. That's the universal church. The local church is is visible. Is visible. The local church is always a mixed multitude. Because who? Did, who? Who? Who determines, who knows who's a part of the universal church? Christ does. Who who determines who's a part of the local church? Well, well we, we do, the, con- the congregation. And so when somebody wants, that's why we interview members. We interview members and they say, I'm a Christian. I've trusted Christ. I've been baptized. And I want to be a part. And we say, you're in, buddy. But then they live like a heathen. They steal out of the offering plate. They beat, 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 beat people up in the bathroom. What, what, so then we... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of Methodists. <laughs> so those people, we, we, say, we say, look, buddy, you got to knock it off. And they say, I'm not going to knock it off. That's Matthew 18. They won't be, be censured. We set them outside of the local church. And so when we put them out of the church, you're saying, We don't think you're a Christian because of the way you're behaving. When you, if you repent and come back, you know, that means you are a Christian, so we'll take you back. So the universal church is always perfect. The visible church is always imperfect. That's why there's no church splits in the universal church. But there's always splits in the local church. Right? So there's 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 two churches. Now I'm to say I am a Baptist from birth,
1: so I'm not just calling baptism. But when you say baptized believer is the only person that's part of the church,
0: the visible church.
1: Baptist, that
0: there's you
1: know, two. There's it
0: well, but we're not. But we're not. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: that's what I'm yeah.
0: I said, well, again, yeah, this thing, baptized believers, baptized believers. Yes, it's in, it is a, in the visible church. Because in the visible church, we're trying to follow the New Testament. And so the New Testament shows us that the, the visible church, the church at Jerusalem, all composed of baptized believers. <clears throat> and so we're trying to follow that pattern, that example. So that's why, that's why we're saying that in the visible church. You have Paul in 1 Corinthians. You have Romans 6. Paul talks about being baptized into Christ. That's spirit baptism. Titus chapter 3. By the washing and regeneration renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's spirit baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That's spirit baptism. When a person is born again, they're baptized into Christ by the Holy Spirit. They're fully overwhelmed by him. <clears throat> is that
1: what you mean by baptism?
0: No. 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 Water. Oh. Uh, Water baptism is one of two prerequisites to being a part of the visible church, and the reason for that. How many of you have? How, how many of you were saved at church? You got you got saved at church. You think you're at church heard a sermon, responded. Okay. Anybody else get saved at work? Fishing. Any of you get saved in any place other than church? <laughs> okay, how many of you guys were baptized? Uh, I think everybody by immersion? After you were saved? Yeah, both. Mike's covered either way. So, so, ba- so, ba- so baptized, are all baptized as believers, and you're all baptized by, probably by by a minister probably all by a minister. And that minister said the exact same thing before he baptized all of you. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was before people or in the presence of other people, and you testified, I unite with Christ. That's what we all have in common, is water baptism. We're identifying with one another. and So when we baptize somebody, that person we're saying, we're, they're identifying with us, we're identifying with them. I, I Sometimes... Uh, Use this illustration. You're putting on the team jersey. I'm on this team. I'm on this team. So that's so yes, to be a part of the visible church, believers and that's what that's what it means to be a Baptist. And you'll find Baptist churches who uh, wiggle on it, and they'll say, "You know, we'll, we'll admit people who are not who don't have believers' baptism." If a congregation wants to do that, they can. If the congregation wants to do that; they can, but they need to adjust. Their confessions, if they're going to do it. John Piper uh, tried to do it at his church. Uh, I think the first time they they went around, they didn't they didn't pass. The second time, I think it did pass because he was saying, if people really believe that their the baptism they received as infants is legitimate, you know, who are we to question their conscience? Uh, I think he went soft on it, but it's it is a uh, it is it is water. It is water. It's a Good question. Any other questions about that? Oh, Bob.
1: Just so I don't skew myself up here, uh, the second prerequisite is what?
0: Oh, the first prerequisite is to be born again. This this thing has died on me. Do we have some more back here, Cindy? Oh, there's a green one. I had I had Mm -hmm. a black one, but I put it. I took it back to the youth. The first one is to be born again. second is to be baptized in water. And uh, Baptists, because Baptists are very argumentative people, there's lots of arguments about uh, lots of dumb stuff. Like triune baptism. Triune baptism, baptism is being baptized in the name of Father, Father. Son, Blush. Spirit, Blush. That's usually... That's an Anabaptist practice. And then they then they have face forward and backwards. No, but you want to no, but you want to go first class. Right. You,
1: you, 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 you.
0: Thank you, Cindy. Well, you're exactly right. You don't have to be a Baptist to go to heaven. And we're we're talking. No, I know, I know they, they think they're
1: going to be the only ones in that choir.
0: Yeah. No, no, That's that's that's, that's, that's a character. That's a caricature of Baptist briders, because Baptist briders, there is a sect of the Baptist bride. Because if you push everything to its extreme, you, people always go to extremes. So, like, if you're a Calvinist, you know, there's the there's the anti-missionary hardshell Baptist who says if they're going to get saved. God will do it. He don't need our help. they are going to get there no matter what. And in the, in the Baptist community, you have people called Baptist Brighters who believe only Baptists are in the bride of Christ. And so, therefore, in eternity, you have two classes of people in eternity. In Jerusalem, the bride of Christ lives with her husband, Jesus. And on the earth, the new heaven, the new earth, that's where all of the non-Baptists are going to spend all eternity. So, so all the Presbyterians are on earth and all the Baptists are in Jerusalem. And that, they're, they're, pushing, they're pushing that to, the, to its extreme. And that's what people do. You can expect that kind of stuff. Uh, so, but you don't have to be a Baptist to go to heaven. I'm not saying that. Thank you for bringing it up. So this Baptist, so, and we're talking about, a, remember, remember, we're talking about ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. We're not talking about soteriology. Yeah, these are these are these are what Baptists have believed about all kinds of things. Probably, and, and they all they cover salvation. So like uh I'm not gonna do that. So this this little acrostic here was developed by a guy named Dwayne Brown in the sixties. Um, this is what I learned when I was a you know a kid. My dad would pound this into your head about what it means to be a Baptist. And uh, these these are these are good things. First of all, it's biblical authority. Everything that uh, Baptists believe, hey Jim, everything that Baptists believe is derived from the Bible. And we find ourselves to be out of line with the Bible. What should we do? Stand by our tradition, or we we'll get in line with the Bible. So, in one sense, Baptists are always uh, always reforming, always trying to get get it right, always trying to get it right and that's why sometimes confession of faith they go through additions or flux but we're're we're the biblical authority that's where we get our instructions from biblical authority. Uh, autonomy of the local church that means that no nobody outside this church tells us what to do as a church. We're autonomous. So even though we're we're a member of the general Association of regular Baptist a Association of churches and the Michigan one, they never tell us anything to do. Like I, I, I emailed Ken Floyd uh, last week, asking a question about something. I was looking for some material. I said, "Is there anything that the association has is recommending to the churches for different stuff?" And he said, basically, no. <laughs> 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 it, and it was, uh, and I thought, well, that's actually good. They're not saying this is what we subscribe to or recommend. Uh, so there's nobody tells us what to do. So. Um, that's why, just for comparison, over at the Methodist Church, uh, their pastor is going to change every few years. They're going to rotate him around, unless it, unless the person's doing an exceptional job. Uh, Baptist churches don't do that. If congregation, the congregation keeps their pastor as long as uh, they can both stand each other, they, they stick around. P is priest of the believer. Now, the P and the I are very important. Priest of the believer. Baptists believe that you are your own priest. You are a peculiar people, a royal priesthood. You can talk to God directly. You don't need an intermediary. There's one mediator between God and man: the man, Christ Jesus. We go to Christ directly. We go to God directly. We don't need a priest. We don't need we don't need uh, the saints. We don't need we don't need Mary. We go right to God. Priest of the believer. And then you have two ordinances or sacraments. Baptists usually don't like the word sacraments, but I put it there because, uh, Baptists a long time ago, sacraments, um, they're, and, they're, and those two, the two sacraments or ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So why do you call them sacraments? Because it's a special kind of thing. So, uh, when I was a kid, my, dad, you know, my dad's a Baptist preacher. Me and my brother, we baptize each other all the time. Because you always play in church, right? And, and I baptized my brother a hundred times. I baptize you in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you hold him down. And, and you hold him down, down. Now, <laughs> that, that baptismal act did not count. Because <laughs> it wasn't sacred, right? So when we baptize somebody, it's sacred, and we can baptize people anywhere, in Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, Mullet Lake, my bathtub, your hot tub. You can baptize anybody anywhere because, but, because in the act, it's sacred. This is a sacred act, and everybody understands that. The second ordinance is the Lord's Supper, also a sacred act. There's nothing special or magical about what you drink or what you eat at the Lord at the Lord's table. We use grape juice and we use this uh that bad taste in bread. (laughs) But the Bible the Bible the Bible really isn't prescriptive about those things. It's not really prescriptive. So um and this and it varies. If you go into other countries you'll find that their their communion practices would not would not pass muster in the United States because just of what's available to them. You know, if you go to Hawaii and they don't have grapes over there, naturally they got something else. It just—it's symbolic. The symbol is what's important, and these things are set apart. So, I—I uh, ca- I don't call it this uh, in people's hearing about the prayer of institution. So when I make the prayer up there, and of course the way we do here, they're they're all spread out. It's kind of kind of pointless, probably. But usually, when you serve the Lord's table, you have the communion table and you have the elements there, and the pastor prays over and says, you know, thanks, thanks for the. Thank you, Lord, for the blood of Christ and His body. It's a, you're saying these things are sacred and' uh, they're, they're special not to be not to be taken lightly or abused, so they're sacraments, they're sacred. Baptists only have two Catholics have seven. Uh, some Baptists have three sacraments, and it's uh, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and foot washing. and the foot washing always precedes communion, always precedes communion. It's always the the women wash the women's feet. The men wash the men's feet. Starts with the deacons. They wash the pastor's feet, and the deacons' wives wash the pastor's wives' feet, and, and this works. It around. It's symbolic. There's not a lot of uh, you know. <laughs> there's no palm olive and <laughs> those green scrubbers. <laughs> it's just symbolic. I've never been to I've never been to foot washing service. I've seen them done on, online, but and then the eye is individual soul liberty or liberty of conscience. This this means that. Every individual, Baptists believe that every individual has the right to interpret God how they see fit. If you want to interpret God however you want to interpret God, that's that's your choice. Even if it damns you to hell. That's your choice. And what it means is, Baptists, we don't coerce people to believe something. They're free to choose. Now, to be a member of a Baptist church... You, you, you're not free to interpret God how you want. But Baptists say that everybody else can interpret God however they want. If they want to think it's a woman, a dog, a snake, however they want to do it, they have the freedom to choose their own religion, their own view of God. And we don't, we don't fight them about it. We, we, we disagree with them. We may argue with them about it, but we're not going to force them. Force them. Now, yeah. soul liberty. Liberty of conscience is something that Baptists, they hold dear. Because uh, Baptists have, were persecuted. Baptistic people, I'm saying, when I say Baptists, I am really mean Baptistic people, they believe that people are free to choose. So in the Roman Catholic world, uh, the Waldensians, I talked about them, they were persecuted because the Catholic Church said, baptize your kids and let our priests come and give the Eucharist or else. And they said, we're not going to do it. And so the Catholic Church said, all right, we're coming up there, and we're going to cut off your heads, and we're going to kill some of you and see if it doesn't change your mind. And the Catholic Church came up there, and they said, we're not going to change. We believe this is what the Bible says. Let God be true to every man alive. We're standing with Christ. And they killed them. And through the dark ages, these numbers are probably inflated, but hundreds of thousands of people are killed. By the Catholic Church and the Spanish Inquisition and the Dark Ages, because they would not conform to what the Catholic Church was saying. Because the Catholic Church believed they, that the Church and state are one. They should be married together. And they had this, and this is interesting. Remember when Jesus was talking to Peter, and he told Peter, uh, sell your coat and buy something? You guys remember what he said to buy? <clears throat> sell your coat and buy swords. And Peter said, "We already got two of them." And the Lord said, "That's enough." Some, the Catholic Church and some other groups, down through the centuries, said that was Christ endorsing the use of the sword in Christian ministry. That if people will not conform, then threaten them with the sword. Other well, Crusades are are are, part, are probably a part of that. <laughs> what it cut <call>, off Michael's <laughs> ear. And a, a part a part of that is because also because the Catholic Church, uh, they believe that they're the true Israel and uh, Israel this is these are these are things to think about. do uh, I wanna slide off in the ditch on this though. Have Go ahead. When I was taught about they more that the Holy Spirit
1: illuminates
0: as a believer
1: understand Scripture. I've never heard of this
0: defining God, mm-hmm. you want? I mean, that kind of all of the chat you know. Um, True, it, does. it does, does. But see, but here, but here, here, herein lies the issue: liberty of conscience. Uh, it means each person has the liberty to choose what their conscience or soul dictates is right, and is responsible to no one but God for the decision that is made, even if it damns them to hell. So. When we're saying that, it's not something that Baptists say, everybody in the the church, we're not saying everybody in the church has this right in a local congregation. We're saying everybody in the world has this right. We don't coerce people. We don't force them into it. It's it's like a, like a Baptist church. My kids are growing up in this church, and I want them to be Christians. I want them to do all the, I want them to believe what I believe about Scripture. But I can't, I'm not, I can't coerce them. I can't force them into the church. And so, just just for illustration, in a church that practices pedo-baptism, the child is baptized as an infant, and who makes the decision whether that kid's a part of the church? The parents do. Well, if the kid doesn't want to be a part of the church, the kid doesn't want to, the, the parents... They make, they make the, the confession on behalf of the child. The child has no choice. And they're brought, they're brought into it. And that, that's one way it works. And the other, and the bigger way it works, as far as Baptists are concerned, is this, is with the states. The, the church, we can't force people's consciences. We don't, we don't coerce people to do, to do these things. So for illustration of people like that would be John Bunyan with the Church of England. They said, you know, you have to have a license to preach. You're preaching outside the, the Church of England. He said, I don't need a license. God has called me and that's all I got and you know, Jesus is my Lord, not the church. So that's that's the that's that's the way the way it works. Uh probably I never heard it taught the way you heard it taught Denise that that way. I always heard the other way. It There's kind of a spectrum of interpretation and teaching about it. But that's that's my that's my, that's my take on it. Anyway, I know it sounds frightening when you say the right to interpret God however you want. But this, this is in the faith of a exactly. But we're not, we're not, we're not, but we're not talking about we're not talking about the church. We're saying that outside the church, people have the right to believe what they want to believe. And if they want to join the church, that's when you guys say, well, "Look, here's what we believe." And they say, "Well, I don't want to believe that." What do we say to them? That's fine. Keep on coming all you want. Keep on tithing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you can't, but you can't vote in the business meetings or make any directional in the church. So uh, the S is saved church membership. Sometimes it's called regenerate church membership. And this is something that we, we try to do. We try to We're trying to only admit people into the church who we are pretty sure are saved people. Pretty sure are saved people. And so we talk to them. And you want them making their own confession of faith, and if they say anyway, that's what we're trying to do. Two two offices, pastors and deacons. Um, a lot of times you'll see elders and deacons. You don't see the word bishop, although in the auth in the authorized version version the word bishop is the word for pastor. And the reason why the King James version used the word bishop because it was translated by not Baptist people, but people in the Church of England, and they had a uh, uh, an episcopal hierarchy. And so they re- wanted to use the word bishop. S the separation of church and state. These things are separate. Uh, Baptists do not want a church state. Uh, other people do. Now, now there's a bit, there's a big push now you'll hear it talked about. It's called Christian Reconstructionism or Theonomy. That's where they want to, that's where they want the, the lesser magistrates to be pastors of the churches. And uh, so the, so we're leading the country Based, uh, we're forcing the the, the country to uh, follow the scripture, or else. Now, We already had a church-state government in America when the Pilgrims came over here in 1620. They were persecuted in England by the Church of England because they were Congregationalist, and they came over here and they organized uh, their, their own their own communities with the church in the center, right? And then, if anybody. Dissented from that church, they were banished from not just the church but also from the community. They're kicked out of the community. And this is a big conflict. There were only two colonies that had religious freedom in the in the colonial period until the Constitution was ratified. Not the Constitution. What's, what came after the Constitution? The Bill, of the Bill of Rights. So the Bill of Rights came out of the Constitution. It before the Bill of Rights was Rhode Island and Pennsylvania. And the reason why Rhode Island and Pennsylvania both had religious freedom for everybody, except Catholics, this is something to keep in mind, um, was because the Baptist, a Baptist guy founded Rhode Island, John Clark. And William Penn, his family, they were Quakers, they founded Pennsylvania because they had both been persecuted by everybody. Back in the old country, and so they wanted a place where people could be free. The first Jewish synagogue in in North America was in Rhode Island. Which think about how how opposite that is. You have a Christian colony, and they let Jews come, where they actually the opposite of Christians. You know, so they, but they said freedom is for everybody. And then down through, it took a hundred odd years. Uh, I think Massachusetts only gave up Congregationalism as their state religion until uh in eighteen like eighteen thirty, so just before the Civil War. And one of, one of the reasons for one of the problems with that the Baptists ran into and Quakers was if the church and state are merged, who pays the preachers? So the preachers were paid from the taxes collected by the state is not a bad gig.
1: <laughs>
0: okay? But then you have people who are not Christians who well, they, they, they don't want to pay they don't want to pay the preacher. Or if you are a Christian and you're and you don't want to pay taxes to pay the preacher with some other church you ain't even agree with, this is these are these are some of the issues for church for the suppression of church and state. Sir. Just
1: uh, I was puzzled why this acrostic? was not what I was drilled into me when I was a little kid in the Baptist church. And, and I just uh, saw, I mean, we, we were baptism of believers, authority of the Bible, and et cetera, a different acrostic. But but then I just saw that uh, it was early 60s when this acrostic was. Yeah,
0: it wasn't around in the 1800s, yeah.
1: though.
0: Oh, Methuselah! <laughs> <laughs> No, you're you're right, Bob. It is it is something. It's from the 1960s forward, and that's why I put it in the notes. That it was derived in the 1960s; they came up with it, and it's been it's almost it, for Baptists. It's almost become like scripture. <laughs> it's almost it's almost like that. Um, but it's it's a it's a handy acrostic for about ecclesiology. This is an important thing. Ecclesiology. This is it's not about. We're not saying only Baptists are saved. Only Baptists are going to heaven. This is just about what what a visible visible church looks like. So number six, where do Baptists come from. In a very real sense, we could say the Baptists come from the Bible, because if you study the New Testament and look for a church model, most people wind up looking more like Baptists than they do Roman Catholics. That's why non-denominational churches they're, they're going to be very they're going to look like Baptist churches. They're going to be baptistic. And I guess I guess we got I guess it's not they're going to look like Baptist churches. They're going to look like New Testament churches. Like what's found in the New Testament. That's why we, I told Sam Agee this. We were talking about it one day. The New Pastors Life Worship Center over here. And I said, Sam, you are a Baptist. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> you know. <laughs> ecclesiologically, we are, he is a Baptist. Mackinac City Bible Church, ecclesiologically, a Baptist. North Shore uh, Church over there. Ecclesi- ecclesiologically. The Westland Church, we Methodist Church, they've, they, not, 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 not Baptist, but they baptize infants. Now, I don't know if the Wesleyan Church does baptize infants. I'm not sure if they do. I know that the, anyway, the Catholics, of course, are still further afield yet. Anyway, uh, I gave you that little thing about the Waldensians. This is just so you can kind of see, kind of a historical confessions are really nice for that. Um, this is 1120. And you say, "Well, how do we know this is really what they, what they, uh, what they believed?" I got this book right here. You can you can compare it. This is the uh, English on one side, French on the other, um, and then you have. Uh, it's all it's all it's it's widely accepted. You can see everything they believe are things that we we believe. Um, You'll see they've they place special emphasis in the first article on the Apostles Creed. We believe and firmly maintain all this contained in the twelve articles of the symbol, commonly called the Apostles Creed. We regard it as heretical, whatever is inconsistent with said twelve articles, because the Apostles Creed. Hey, Erica. Okay, I think, I Our school ran out of the flavor call for popcorn that Jim said I could come get it. Oh, okay. That's fine. Stop, thief!
1: I didn't know which what gym she gym meant.
0: Gym? <laughs> Any old gym will do. Uh, so the Apostles' Creed—that's the—that's the oldest confession of faith, and uh, that's kind of a foundation for it. Uh, Baptists usually don't recite the Apostles' Creed. The reason they don't is because of the when in the Reformation period, the whole world gets turned on its ear, and whatever, whenever smelled y is frowned upon. And I was uh, I was preaching a series of sermons in Arkansas on on the incarnation of Christ. And the very first Sunday, man, I launched into the Virgin Birth, right? And I talked about the Virgin Mary, and she was a virgin. And a Catholic lady was attending for the first time, and she said, "Wow." I didn't know Baptists believed in the virgin birth. Because they don't even because they don't talk about it. Sometimes it's because it has that schmacks of Catholicism. So the church I pastored in Oklahoma, they had no crosses in the whole church. You guys heard me say this lots of times. we didn't celebrate Christmas. Any of that stuff because all those things have some connection. You couldn't say we couldn't say Easter Sunday, it always had to be Resurrection Sunday. Because all those things had some connection to Catholicism and um, you know, people overcorrect. But this shows 1120. Then 1544, you'll see there's a slight, there's some slight changes. Because 1517, October 31st, 1517, Wittenberg, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther, nails his 95 theses to the chapel door. Reformation period starts technically. And uh, once that happens, you know, the whole world goes crazy. And uh, a lot of good things happen. But this shows the development in their thinking. 1120, the Waldensians are uh, simple. 1544, a little more complex. Those are their knowledge. You know, 400 years, basically, of uh, of growth and knowledge. So, that's Lecture 1. We're going to do a Lecture 2 in just a few minutes. Because we're going to skip almost the whole thing. Because... Lecture two, where did our confession come from? Uh, this is from the GRBC website. Our church is a part of the General Association of Regular Baptist, uh, which is a fellowship of churches that work together uh, for missions and education. It's a, it's a good group of churches. This is from the GRBC website. This gives a, a brief history of, the, of our confession of faith. If you want to see, to read a much longer uh, thing, this is forty pages. The history of the GRBC Confession of Faith, very interesting. If you if you like if you like nerdy stuff, history that'll float your boat. I love it. I geek out on that stuff. So, so I'll just point out a few terms as you read through here. So in that first big paragraph, New Hampshire Confession of Faith. You see the number 1780, about seven or eight sentences down, left-hand column. After 1780, when Benjamin Randall gathered a free will Baptist church, a free will Baptist church is a Baptist church fellowship that believes you can lose your salvation, Believe you can send away your day of grace. Uh, you turn the page, and in that first paragraph, uh, about halfway down, you'll see uh, you'll see three names in succession: Riley J. Frank Norris and William Pettingill W.B. Riley was uh, he was 61 years old in 1922 so he was born in the 19th century he was a pastor First Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota um, a fundamentalist I'm going say this while we're talking about it. fundamentalism is not a bad thing in Christianity because it means you believe the fundamental, the core truths of Christianity. Just like in baseball or basketball, when you when you really start make a lot of mistakes, what do coaches say? We got to get back to the the fundamentals, the basics, you know. So the fundamental doctrines, um, fundamentalism kind of has been colored negatively because, to quote John MacArthur, to quote John MacArthur, uh, the fundamentalist. You know nobody wants to be a fundamentalist because there's there's no fun too much damn and not enough mental <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it, it has been you what know, yeah that's kind of a famous thing i don't want to
1: know where the line is of where your tuber comes from with those coming from the south to the north where does that change i sure haven't heard a lot of things you've talked about with your Humorous type of <laughs> slogans,
0: things. Like, I, <laughs> I don't know. I guess almost the composite of
1: uh, Dixon. <laughs> All kinds of stuff. I guess
0: my mom has a real good sense of humor, and I don't know. It's just it's probably the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But uh, anyway, Riley, First Baptist Minneapolis, uh, well educated, Jay Frank Norris. J. Norris gets the credit usually for being the, the, the first independent Baptist. And uh, J. Freddie Norris, either you loved him or hated him. Very controversial person. He was he was very smart, very intelligent. Uh, he matriculated from the Southern Seminary uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, he was shot in the stomach when he was 15 years old by some guys who were trying to rob his dad's farm. He got shot in the gut. He almost died, became a Christian. He was from, he was from Alabama. Grew up in Texas. Um, Google it. Googling, you'll 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 be tripped out by the things you'll read about. It. He pastored to the largest churches in America at the same time: First Baptist Church Fort Worth, Temple Baptist Church Detroit, Michigan, and he pastored all through the '30s there. And he would be at one church on one Sunday, get on a train, and drive uh, right up there, be at Detroit the next the next Sunday, then go back. Both churches were very large at the time. He was uh, a big proponent of. He was a Radical anti-Catholic, uh, but when he was in Rome, passing through, guess who he stopped off to see? <laughs> he stopped off to see the Pope. <laughs> so, went in Rome, do what, the, do what the Romans do. The third guy is, uh, Jeffrey Norris was 45 years old when this took place in 1922. William Pettingill was 36 years old. He pastored First Baptist Church uh, in New Jersey, uh, right across from uh, New York right there, one of the, one of the, one of the big city churches. Pettigill wrote a lot of books on eschatology. Uh, towards the end of that paragraph, see the word amillennialist? The executive committee quickly revised the last article so that an amillennialist could cite it. Um, it kind of got to be in North America that if you really believe the Bible, you are premillennial. And that was... Uh, because, because that wasn't true, they adjusted it so an omnipotent could sign it. And all they, all they would say was, if you believe Jesus is really coming again, we'll, we'll let you in the camp. Later on, this changes. But the, an omnipotent is a person who does not believe that there is a literal 1,000-year kingdom on the earth. Uh, then you have this brief statement about the General Association of Regular Baptists, where they came from. Uh, they appeared. There's a lot more. You can go to you can go to the GRBC website and read all, all about it. It's uh it's it's great stuff. So, last two questions. Is our confession a good one? Yes, it's good. Is it perfect? No. Could it be better? Yes. Confessions of faith are born out of the necessity of clarifying positions. Clarifying positions. Early Baptist confessions of England were prepared so that non-Baptist Christians would know that Baptists were Christians too. This is kind of a boogeyman about people. Because I I grew up with boogeyman Catholicism. I don't remember, I never met a Catholic. I grew up in the South. Southern Illinois, Virginia, there are no Catholics. Very, very few. Especially, maybe in the larger cities, there are more Catholics. I never met a Catholic person. Um, so all you, and then all you hear is boogeyman Catholic, stories about the Catholics. Now, are 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 some Catholics actual Christians? Yes, they are. All all of them. Well, not even all Baptists are saved, so we can't say that. So there's there's a so people say these Baptist people they do weird stuff. Some of the things they said about Baptists was the baptism Baptist, Baptist uh, <laughs> they were they were they were called immoral. Because the rumor was they immerse people and they baptize in the (laughs) nude. So you know why all those dudes are for (laughs) believer's baptism. So there's boogeyman kind of stuff. And they put it in in writing so people would know what they really believed. Most confessions are written in times of controversy. Therefore, they tend to emphasize what was important at at the time. No confession is perfect, but many are completely adequate. Uh, the GRBC Confession has undergone alterations to address new issues. If you guys got the email from me, there's a supplemental section at the very end that has talks about transgenderism, homosexuality, gay marriage, because those were not issues in 1932. They weren't issues in 1960 or 1982 either. But you, know, you, have, you have to keep on working on these things. Um, our current confession is not the latest one. I like the original 1853. Version of the New Hampshire Confession, and then the 1689, which is this thing that this little book right here. I laid it down somewhere. The London Confession. These are easy to get, and uh, they're written in old English, kind of a old style. But some of the you can get modernized ones. It's really helpful. It's kind of know what Baptists have thought through the centuries. Uh, I recommend these confessions to you to study and read over, and uh, it's good, to, good, it's good to know. One, one of the things that it really helps you with is they have proof text. There's a statement and then a proof text. And that's what we'll get into next time we meet. Is there'll be a statement of truth and then the scripture that it's pressed upon. Now, we won't be able to look at every single scripture because there's lots of scriptures. We'll just, it would just take forever. But we'll use a few of them to kind of see. And if, if you, if you in your own personal study, look at the scriptures and you go, now, why does this verse, it doesn't seem to go with this. Point it out, but that will be a good talking point to really learn to really learn something. Number three, and lastly, why can't we just say yo? I just believe the Bible, man. Can we just say that? Yes, you can say that, but it doesn't really tell tell us anything. Does it mean you believe the Bible is true? Does it mean that you that you understand the Bible? Uh, Catholics believe the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Arians, Oneness Pentecostals, and Campbellites all say. They believe the Bible. But it's not really that helpful. We need to know what you believe about the Bible. You think the Bible is teaching. And so confessions of faith are helpful. They're not required. If you wanna if you wanna walk around town saying you believe the Bible, you know there are worse things you could say, right? There are worse things you could say.